Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah everybody and welcome home. For the past few years we've always started our programs with this statement and we mean it because community is a place that we all should call home. A place that gives us peace, a place that gives us tranquility and a place that we know is going to be there. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes faith in the Quran, He mentions stability as being a requirement for faith to grow. Asluha thabit wa far'uha sama That its roots are firm and its branches grow to the sky. If we don't have stability, if we don't have permanence, if we don't know that something is going to be there for us, then our faith won't be able to grow. This is why when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina and made the migration, the hijrah with his companions, at that moment, when they arrived at their new permanent home, he said the beautiful phrase, Afshus salam, spread peace. Why? Because peace can be attained now that we have a place that we can call home. For the past five years, Roots has been able to be a part of so many people's lives, alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah. And we're so honored to have that be a part of our legacy. But we've been doing it in temporary spaces. We've been doing it in hotel banquet halls, in masjid side rooms, in people's living rooms at home, and in temporary lease spaces where when we were signing the lease, we knew that this was not going to be there forever. But that can change. By the favor of Allah, with our foundational organization, Qalam, we've been able to find this beautiful property here in Carrollton, Texas that will be the permanent location and facility for the Roots Community Space. A place where everybody can feel that tranquility and have that growth of faith that Allah Ta'ala tells us about. We need your help to close on this property. We need you to generously donate and contribute whatever you can, adding your name to this list of people that will help build and construct a permanent home for us to build the model community following the example of the Prophet Muhammad in Medina. Help us make this dream a reality. Visit rootsdfw.org home. Okay, bismillah, walhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Welcome home everybody. Good to see everybody, alhamdulillah. Eid um, Mubarak, yeah, no? You're gonna, you're gonna hear the audio kind of being uh, moved around a little bit just because they're trying to get this this set up inshallah there's it's a really sophisticated system there's like different zones and stuff so they gotta we're tweaking it inshallah um but until then we'll just go ahead and uh you know get started and check in with everybody hopefully your aid was good inshallah as you can tell i went tanning <laughs> uh fell asleep in the tanning but no uh just spent a lot of time outside and this is the one part of me that didn't get the egyptian genes uh this is definitely the irish side um so, uh, nevertheless, alhamdulillah, it's good to be back. Uh, we're, inshallah, me or him? You're okay, okay, he's holding the phone up. All right, uh, inshallah, we're going to be starting. Uh, there was a lot of conversation about what to go over and, and what to move on to next. Um, you know, a lot of different texts and things like that. How many of you have heard about uh, Surah Kahf before, ever, like in any capacity? So, Surah Kahf is a chapter in the Quran, it's chapter number 18, and Surah Kahf is one of like the more, I like to call them like milestone chapters. So you obviously, every chapter in the Quran is important, every verse, every letter is critical, right, without a doubt. There are some chapters that have um, virtue that is assigned to them by the Prophet ﷺ, specifically for some reason. Okay, so we know one of the examples might be Surah Mulk. Does anyone know the virtue of Surah Mulk? Huh? Protects you from the, protects you, yeah, protects you in the grave. Yeah, from the punishment of the grave. Very good. If someone reads Surah Mulk 
regularly, like nightly or daily or whatever, and they make it a part of their regimen, then in the grave, when the person passes away and that person uh, is, you know, in their resting place, um, we know that the grave is not just like a, um, the grave is not just like a holding cell. The grave actually has experience, right? The, the life of the barzakh has this experience. There's actually beautiful experiences in the grave. Uh, one of the things that's really beautiful is that people will be reunited with the, those who they love. You'll be able to actually meet and enjoy time with and meals and all that with people that you love, right? If you're a person that, inshallah, is destined for paradise, you have your book written for paradise, then the grave actually becomes almost like a precursor to that, a preface to that. Um, and on the other side, if, if there's a person that, you know, neglected Allah, didn't care about Allah, etc., and didn't really have any, you know, feelings about repenting and whatnot, then the grave can be a pretty bad place, right? And there's punishment that we hear about, uh, punishment of the grave specifically. Now, Surah Al-Mulk, if a person makes Surah Al-Mulk a part of their life, then the Prophet ﷺ said that that surah will literally, this is not like an exaggeration, that surah will literally stand guard the soul in the grave. And any time any sort of consequence makes its way near that person, like any sort of consequence or punishment or whatever, Surah Al-Mulk will say, no, back, back away. Why? Because this person kept me as a companion during their life, right? Like I, this person read me constantly, engaged with me constantly during their life. So there's no punishment for this person. This is part of the promise of the Prophet ﷺ about this surah. Okay, other chapters, Surah Yasin, there's a narration that says that everything has a heart. Everything has a heart, meaning an essence. And the heart of the Quran is Surah Yasin. It's a little bit weak, but anyways, it's a narration. Uh, there's a narration that says that the person who memorizes Surah Al-Baqarah, that they will attain paradise. Uh, there's a narration that says that for a person who recites uh, Surah Al-Ikhlas, it's equal to reading how much of the Quran? One third. One third, right? So if you read it three times, boom. All right, you got your khatam. No, I'm just not how that works. But so the point I'm trying to make is that there are chapters in the Quran that have specific virtue tied to them. And that doesn't necessarily mean that other chapters aren't as important or don't have, no. It just means that this is something special. So Surah Al-Kahf has a similar kind of status and a relationship with the reader and the believer. Okay, a couple of things about Surah Al-Kahf that are interesting. Number one, and this is probably the one that you've heard of the most. Anyone here heard of something in particular about Surah Al-Kahf? Anybody? Yeah. Gold hijab, yeah. Oh, wow, that's not the one I was expecting. Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> You're going straight for the end of times, yes. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Yes, very good. I don't mean, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just, it, it, like, the, the one that's so low-hanging fruit, you were just like, nope. And you went, like, straight to the top, mashallah. Okay, so we're going to go to that one at the end, because I have a specific point that I read about that that I think is really powerful. So we're going to save that. All right. So if you didn't hear her, then, you know, a little bit of a teaser. Yes. So, yeah, very good. So there's a lot of virtue in the person reading it on Fridays. Anyone heard Surah Kahf Fridays, that relationship? Read your Kahf, read your Kahf, right? You can get started on Maghrib Thursday night, and then you have to, you should get it done by Maghrib on Friday. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, there's some narrations here in which the Prophet tells us, 
that for a person who recites Surah Kahf on Jumu'ah, then every sin that they committed between Jumu'ahs will be forgiven. So it's like bookends. It's like forgiveness bookends. Like if a person reads it this Friday and next Friday, whatever they've done in between, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive their sins uh, in between those two Jumu'ahs. Uh, another narration about Fridays. Whoever reads Surah Kahf on Fridays, this one is narrated uh, by Ali radiallahu anhu that the Prophet said, that they will be protected from every fitna, okay? Every single fitna, every single test. What is a fitna? It could be a lot of things. A fitna could be a trial or a calamity that a person experiences, uh, you know, as a result of their own actions or deeds. It could be something that a person sends upon them. It could be a fitna that everyone's experiencing. Um, there is a another narration in which the Prophet ﷺ told us that when Surah Al-Kahf was revealed, it was revealed all at once which we know the Qur'an was not the norm, okay? The Qur'an was not revealed surah by surah. Wasn't a, there was not 114 meetings with uh, Jibreel No, it was done piecemeal, portion over portion over time. But some of them, there are narrations that say that when they came, the surahs were so self-encapsulated, were so, um, you know, necessary to be kept together as a, as a message that, they were revealed at one time in one sitting. Surah Yusuf also has a narration that says that had that as well. Now, mashallah, the, the first sister, you said uh, that the, the, the big one, the Dajjal, okay? And this is something that I think is really important. You guys ever heard of this guy before? Ad-Dajjal? Masih Dajjal. Okay, so who is Ad-Dajjal? Dajjal is, if, if you think about him, then there's problems. Then you've gotten your deen from YouTube, right? The, all right, where are my British Muslims at? <laughs> I'm just joking. Okay. <laughs> All right. British Muslims are like, anyway, sorry. Okay. I love them so much. All right. So, in it. So, uh, Dajjal, the Dajjal is one of the creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. He's one of Allah's creations. And in this creation, there is a purpose. Okay. He's just like the creation of a shaitan. Shaitan is also one of the creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not love shaitan. Okay? That's that's not something that you can say. It's not something that you can believe. Allah does not love shaitan. Uh, shaitan is cursed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Similarly, in that vein, Ad-Dajjal takes the same category or the same team or the same side as a shaitan, which is what? His existence, his creation, his purpose is not to do things that are good, right? He's, his purpose is to do things that function as trial and as fitna in a specific time, in a specific place uh, for all of humanity, similar to shaitan, okay? What is Dajjal? Now, we know a few things that the Prophet ﷺ told us about Dajjal, right? We know some of the descriptions that he has. We know some of the physical descriptions. We know that for the believers, that have iman in their hearts, that they will be able to see, uh, you know, as we say in English, they'll be able to see right through him. One of the things that we learn about from the believers is that they'll be able to see a stamp on the forehead of a Dajjal, uh, that he will be performing all these miracles left and right in front of people, right? Uh, you know, bringing people back from the dead and cutting people in half and reassembling them. All these miracles that we've heard about as people who believe in prophets, He'll be able to like, Allah will give him the ability to re-perform these miracles. 
And the Prophet tells us, kind of like prophesizes and gives us the forewarning that this person will be able to come and just like a really good magician like David Blaine, he'll be able to do all these things right before your eyes and you're literally going to have to discount your own visual sense. And you're going to have to rather place your trust in the fact that you've heard about this before and that you learned that this was going to happen, right? So you're going to have to like witness something with your eyes and then say, seeing is not believing. Because the Prophet told me that there's going to come a time where a person is going to come and he's going to be able to perform these miracles. But the ability to perform these miracles is not an evidence of their of their holiness or their truth as whatever they claim. This is just a performance. It's a delusion. It's a distraction. So the Prophet said that your witnessing of these miracles is going to test you. But as a believer, you're going to have the innate understanding that this person is, is false in their prophethood and that you're going to actually see as a believer the letters ka, fa, and ra on their forehead, on his forehead, which means what? Ka, or you see kafara or kafir, either one, right? Ka'arif or kafara, either one. So you'll see like that he disbelieved or that he is a rejecter and a disbeliever. So believers will have this sort of ability to see these things, okay? Now, the reason why I gave you this big preface about Dajjal is because Surat Kahf, as was mentioned, is one of the ways in which a person will be guaranteed to have protection from that individual's delusions and their illusions on that day. Okay. Now, why is this really important? Because it was funny the other day, this is so ironic. I was talking to a little, you know, a little kid, a little boy. And um, mashallah, you know, when I met him, the first thing he said to me is, like, I'm going to be a sheikh. And I was like, wow, mashallah, you know, I was like, about time, right? And then I can just go tanning every day, right? Um, that was a joke about my skin. Okay, so, and then I said, you know, mashallah, and, and, and his dad told me, like, this kid is so into the deen, he's like seven years old, that he's kind of like waiting for Dajjal to show up. Like, he's taking Muay Thai, and he's like waiting to take him down. Now, as cute and as funny as that is, the Prophet actually told us, that as believers, you should basically wish that you don't make it to that day. You should basically feel like I don't want to be there. Because why? It's going to be such a time of trial and such a time of confusion that it's going to be very difficult for even people with very strong religious sensibilities to know up from down, left from right, right from wrong. It's going to be really tough, right? The believer never wants to be tested. They don't want to. Because they don't want to, in a way that they don't know if they can pass it, because they don't want to even, you know, it's like, subhanAllah, you don't want your iman to even take any dents, any hits whatsoever. So as confident as you might be, and you might think, well, you know what, like, I just finished Ramadan, I'm sky high, I'm this, that, I, you know, I listen to these lectures, I go to these classes, you still don't want to run headfirst into fitna, okay, fitna, you don't want to be that person that thinks you can handle it. So... Now, one of the scholars said something really powerful about this. A Dajjal, the Prophet told us that he's one of the greatest uh, you know, fitnas that Muslims will ever experience. He's one of the greatest. So one of the scholars of Hadith said something really beautiful. He said, if reading Surah Al-Kahf from week to week can protect you from some of the greatest fitnas, a Dajjal, then he said it only logically makes sense that it also will protect you from what? lesser fitness, that it also will give you the ability to discern right from wrong in your day-to-day -day life. 
And this is actually an example of how the Quran functions. The Quran is ultimately, you're right, this is one of the reasons why we call it Al-Furqan. Furqan is the thing that teaches you right from wrong, the criterion. I know it's a weird translation. The criterion, like anyone who, your name is Furqan, anyone? Anyone here, your name is Criterion? Okay, so oh, you probably don't even know, like what does that mean? It means literally the thing that separates, right? Farq in Arabic means the difference or the, the, the separator, the thing that can separate. So the Qur'an allows you to be able to separate what? Right from wrong. Things that are good for you and things that are bad for, for you. And this is why the month of Ramadan, which is the month that you are engaged the most with the Qur'an by default, is the month that you just happen to, not coincidentally, make the best choices, make the best decisions. And even when you and I make wrong decisions in the month of Ramadan, we know and we're a lot more aware of the consequences of those decisions we're aware of the fact that these are not the right moves to make like we're a lot more acutely aware of these things so surat al-kahf is one of those chapters that will protect you from the fitna that you experience in your life fitna can be a bunch of different things man you know if, if people if, if anyone here had like a really really or you've heard of maybe not in your own life but you've seen like a really really like traumatic family experience like there's like this unfortunate maybe fallout between siblings or parents and children or spouses or friends. You guys ever heard of these stories? May Allah protect us. That's a, you know, have you guys seen in communities? There are communities that I visited where they will tell me that the board is suing each other. Like literally, I know that some people are here are like laughing, like suing each other and they're using the masjid donated funds to pay for the lawsuit, right? And they just happen to have a lawyer who's a son who's a lawyer. No, I'm joking. It's like all like vertically integrated, right? Although I have heard of, anyways, I have heard of horror stories. It's fitna, man. And, and, then, and then meanwhile, as these people are fighting over who gets to have the keys to the masjid, right? Which is such a weird thing because masjid positions are not paid positions. Like board positions are not paid. Just FYI, okay? It's not like being in Congress. Like you don't get paid to be a masjid president, okay? Far from it. Usually it's, it's, it's a lot of work, no sleep being, you know, thankless job, whatever, but people sometimes power is so attractive. And in the midst of that, generations of generations of people, you know, young people, old people, whatever, men, women are all so dissuaded from attending the masjid because of all the drama that's happening. You see, fitna is a really, really difficult thing. It's a really, really difficult thing. And it's so odious. It's like water. Has anyone here ever had a leak in their house? I don't mean to bring up like strike a nerve, right? You ever had a leak in your house, like something leaked, okay? What happens when water leaks in your house, under your carpet and your drywall? What happens? Can anyone explain? Can anyone share a story with us? Can you relive your pain right now? Oh my God, Tahar, not you. No, no. Yours is way too close to home. No pun intended. Anyone here? Water damage? Yeah. Oh, God. You guys hear that? One time my family and I went on a vacation. We asked about water damage. You guys know what's going to happen. Okay. Just dripping. Yep. That's it. And it was crazy. It's like, it's not usually a giant amount of water. It's just a small amount over time. And then it completely destroyed, right? All that drywall. 
probably just whatever. And then you guys had to run fans, I'm guessing, in the house forever yeah. to dry all the. Yeah, so that's the whole like debris that fell, like the entire thing that fell. Like, yep. Yeah, dry it out. It was really gross. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Anybody else? Yeah. SubhanAllah. <laughs> oh, it actually like exploded. Oh God. Oh my God. You had a you had a rainfall shower head. Oh, this one's not working. <laughs> that was really insensitive. You know, Allah made the battery die right at that moment. To teach me, like Abdurrahman, just don't. Right? Inside thoughts. Yeah. So, and how long were you out of your living situation for? A while. Still now, till this day, you're like, we still don't use it, actually. <laughs> okay. It's what? Yeah, it's insane, right? And again, the water side of it, like, and we'll talk about this in a second as soon as I get this, this microphone going. All right, testing, testing, yeah. So, so all jokes aside about the water damage, it's a really traumatic experience. And then moving forward, you know, if you're buying a house and you see that it had water damage, there's a lot of hesitance because you're not sure if they cleaned it up the right way. You got to get inspectors to come like poke holes in the wall. They have these little probes, water sensitivity probes, and they'll tell you like, oh, this, this drywall is still a little bit, it's not completely dry. And they run fans for like, not days, like weeks to completely dry the place out. Okay, water is odious, all right? It's, it's subhanAllah, it's the thing that gives life, but it can be very problematic. And in that way, right, there's other substances you can think of, carbon dioxide, whatever. Fitna is very similar to that, in that they always tell you that water will always find its way. Water will find the crack and make its way over to the next space, always. It doesn't just stop, you know what I mean? Water doesn't just stop and say, you know what, this room's enough. No, if there is a crack in the floor, it will go underneath. And it will go underneath that flooring, whatever it is, wood, carpet, vinyl, whatever you got, it's going to go underneath. And if there's a crack in that wall, it's going to find its way in that wall. And fitna is the same way it's worse. The Prophet ﷺ, even during his life, he had people that engaged in starting fitna. Okay? One of them was a very famous story about his wife, Aisha, her mother, that his wife, Aisha, was slandered. Right, that a story was made up about her, about her integrity in her marriage with the Prophet That you know, she basically in the story she lost a piece. Uh, uh, she went back to use the the restroom uh, during a caravan, and she got delayed for a reason. And then she came back, uh, and she found no caravan there. And typically, the rule with caravans is they had one person that was sort of like the sweeper to make sure that you know anyone who was left behind, they went and got them. So. This individual, this companion went and found Aisha At first he didn't know if she was alive. So he was like, he was just like freaking out. And then he saw her and he was very happy that she was of course healthy. And he got off of his animal and he, you know, made her get on top and he uh, walked the animal back to the, uh, to the caravan, to Medina. And when he came in, people who saw this, one of them, his name was Abdullah bin Ubay Sarud, the leader of the hypocrites. He took this and he made a entire fictional story and narrative about how the Prophet's wife was not faithful. Okay. And this now, again, like you're like, okay, easy case, you know, case shut, whatever. 
is the Prophet's wife. No, no. When this took over, it was so, again, it was so odious that I want you to imagine like the aunt and the cousin of the Prophet's wife, Aisha's aunt and cousin, were like talking about this in their gatherings. Like, did you hear? They were, I mean, they were engaging in the spilling of tea, right? About their own niece and cousin, who's the wife of the Prophet, to the point where there was a short period of time where the Prophet genuinely was affected, didn't know what to believe. Aisha got a deep fever. She was sick about this until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself had to exonerate her in the Quran, right? So just to let you understand like what fitna does, it's destructive. And, and some of the scars and some of the damage that fitna causes, like when you renovate your house and like reconstruct these bathrooms and dining rooms, like sometimes people come over, they can't tell, but you can tell. You look and you're like, that paint is a little bit less yellow than that side. Or, you know, you, there's a little bit of a weird outline. Like this area looks brand new, right? This part of the bathroom is brand new. Like the shower looks brand new. And the sink still looks like it's from 1970s, right? Why? Because you know, you know what happened. You know the fitna that occurred to your house and the, 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 re the restoration that had to occur. It's the same thing in communities. There are communities, there are families, there are friends, there are relationships that have been scarred because the fitna ran rampant and they had to rebuild and they had to reconstruct. And there's a lot of, to use a very overpopularized word, there's a lot of trauma that people experience religiously that has to be healed. So, Surah Al-Kahf is one of the remedies for this. It's one of the protectors from this and one of the remedies. Why? Well, the Quran has superpower. We know that, right? Reading the Quran is in itself a shifa. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us it is a cure. We know that the Quran is an illumination. It gives us light, allows us to see our way, okay? But the content of Surah Al-Kahf is phenomenal. There are four separate subsections of the surah. So it feels like four different stories. And even though they all have four different approaches and four different details, sets of details, all of the stories kind of revolve around the same principles. And we'll find them, inshallah, as we engage uh, in those stories. Now, what was the initiation of the surah? There's an entire sub subject in tafsir called Asbab al-Nuzul. Why was it revealed? What was the purpose of revelation of this? A good example of this. Does anyone know the story about the man who was blind who came to the Prophet ﷺ and there was a surah revealed for him? What surah was it? Very good. See, like everyone's familiar with that, right? That's literally called Asbab al-Nuzul. It's meaning it's, a, it's a, a, um, a historical science in which the scholars of tafsir engage with Siran history and they say, okay, this surah has a specific catalyst this surah has a specific moment, like we can pinpoint that there is a moment in time in the life of the Prophet ﷺ that set forward the revelation of the Qur'an that we have here. It's called Asbab al-Nuzul, okay? So Abbas has a famous story. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca was engaging in some da'wah with the leaders of Quraysh, and they were like, whatever, giving him half attention, half not, standard. But he was engaging as it was his job to do, and... Who comes on to him? This man named Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum, who happened to be blind. And he was also from the community uh, in Mecca that was not well off financially. So he comes to the Prophet ﷺ and he asks him a question. He asks him a very, very, almost like, I don't want to say it's a, 
he asked him a question that could have been asked pretty much any other time. Okay, anyone here have kids? This is literally like the closest thing I can think of. You're engaged in a really important conversation. You know, I, I'm actually, uh, I, I, we're renewing Musa's passport uh, because no one believes he's a baby anymore. Um, so we're renewing his passport and I'm on the phone trying to get a passport appointment. If you know, it's like trying to get, you know, into Willy Wonka's factory. It's like impossible. So I finally make it through after using a bot. No, I'm joking. After getting <laughs> phone call after phone call, all you shoes, all you sneakerheads don't talk about. Okay. After, after trying to just get an appointment for this kid, and I finally get one, and I'm talking to this guy on the phone, and it's kind of like the DMV. Like, the passport agency is like DMV's little brother. People who really don't like their jobs, and they don't want to talk to you, even though that is their job, and they don't want to really help you, although also that is their job. Um, and so I'm trying to be super nice and friendly, like, hi, this is David. I'm like, hey, David, great name, right? You be Goliath this morning? Like, just really trying to keep him engaged at any level so that he gives me an appointment. So I'm talking to him, I'm like, yeah, and he's just kind of like, and he's kind of reciprocating a little bit, right? Like a little bro flirting is happening, he's reciprocating. So I'm like, hey, David, he's like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, how's your day? He's like, not too well. I'm like, man, it's a tough one, isn't it? Um, I'm like, make sure you take some time for you today, okay, David? And uh, <laughs> well, lie, I swear to God, I was saying stuff like this. I'm like, take care of yourself, man. Stand up, stretch, 15 seconds every hour, minute, whatever, you know? And uh, so we're like talking and, and in the moment where he's going to give me like the code, you know, where they're like, you have a pen ready because it's some sort of code that you need when you check into the uh, um, check into the place. Like you have to check in with this code. Otherwise, they just don't believe you. Who comes running in the house telling me about, you know, everything he's doing outside in the backyard? Musa. It's like scream. Bah, 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 bah. And I'm like, and you don't want to, of course, like, you know, you don't want to uh, traumatize your kid. Be quiet, right? I need your passport. We're going on vacation. It's going to be great. And you're ruining it. Then he's going to hate his life. And then David, I'm like on thin ice with this guy, right? I don't know. It just could be one weird thing until maybe he hates kids. And he's like, oh, he just hangs up. So it's a very stressful situation. Now, again, if you've been through something like that, right, then now empathize with the Prophet ﷺ. But I want you to understand one cool thing. The Prophet ﷺ, when this happened to him, the only being that knew his reaction was Allah. <laughs> when this happened, he's talking to Quraysh, okay? He's making headway. You know, he's talking to them, trying to build, uh, you know, a rapport with them, relationship. And, he, you know, maybe he feels like he's actually, you know, he's got their ear. They're not aggressive. They're not harassing him and, you know, trying to fight him. That's, that's a win. And then in the moment where he's engaging, you have Abdullah ibn Maktoum coming to him and saying, you know, like, okay, can I, you know, what's the ruling on wiping over my sock? Something very similar. My, my teacher who taught us this story back at Sheikh Ihab, he actually used that example. He goes, he asked him something very, very non-emergent, right? Like, it didn't have an emergent, urgent feel to it, okay? I was like, hey, can you explain inheritance to me again? It's like, and he's like, so the Prophet ﷺ, the description that the tafsir gives was that he didn't frown. That was actually a really unfortunate translation. He didn't frown, right? The translation normally goes, he frowned and turned away. He didn't frown. The, the tafsir specifically, tafsir Qurtubi and others, Ibn Kathir and also, they all carry these narrations. They literally, the, the brow of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the, the, his eyebrows, the brow, it quickly, less than a second, twitched. Like you couldn't even tell. If you weren't staring right at like preparing yourself, here it comes. 
you could not tell that he had any movement in his face whatsoever. Okay. And also, Abdullah bin Umaytum, reminder was what? Blind. So he didn't see it, definitely. Even the people who could watch it didn't see it. Those who were maybe even there didn't see it. Who's the only one who saw it? Allah. <laughs> so then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends the surah, Abasa wa ta'wala a'ma, that, you know, his face made that, his, his eyes twitched briefly and he turned away. That was all that happened when the man who was blind came to him. So the Prophet of course, he had a good sense of humor. He was incredibly good spirited. When the surah, of course, became known to Abdullah bin Maktoum. Imagine, like, he's like, yeah, it's my, I got featured in the Quran, <laughs> right? Like, we know this story now. We know who he is because of this. The Prophet wasn't like, yeah, this guy, you know, like, oh man, like, this is like the one, the one recollection, the one preservation of like a big mistake that I made. No, he, when he walked in the room, he would say, Salamu alaikum to the one who Allah corrected me because of him. Right? Abdullah Ubatum's like, yeah. <laughs> right? Now, what's also crazy is that the Prophet also didn't just, you know, it wasn't like a formality, it wasn't a performance. He actually engaged Abdullah ibn Maktoum in a beautiful way. You know, in Medina, there was the famous Mu'addin. Who's the famous Mu'addin of Medina? Bilal, radiallahu anhu. The famous Mu'addin. Now, who was the not so famous Mu'addin? Abdullah bin Maktoum. He was the second Mu'addin. Now, Mu'addin is a serious thing. I know nowadays it's kind of like, you know, if you're at the masjid and you know how to work a microphone, bismillah, right? No, the Mu'addin is a serious thing because if the Imam is sick or unable to lead or if they, you know, for whatever reason during Salah they have to bow out, usually it's the Mu'addin that has to step up. Do you guys know all of the, all of the Mu'addinin in, in the Haramain or all of the Qur'an? All those guys who call the Adhan in, Mesh- uh, in Mecca, Medina, they're all memorized of Quran. They usually all have bachelor's degrees and master's degrees in Sharia. They all are very trained, educated. They, they're not just a pretty voice, right? And they, they actually have, subhanAllah, a lot of substance there. So Abdullah bin Umaktoum was the Mu'addin. Now here's the crazy part. In order to be the Mu'addin, in order to call the Adhan, what is the one... Okay, you need to have the faculty of, of voice. But what is the other faculty you need to have? Yeah. You need to, to see what? Yeah, like, you know that Fajr ends when the sun comes up. You know that Maghrib comes in when the sun comes You know that Dhuhr comes in at a certain point when the sun's in the sky. The shadow has to be, you know, either uh, uh, equal to or double the length, depending on the madhab or whatnot. And Aisha comes in when, this, when the sun is fully set. So these are all functions of sight. So the companions, they sort of like embarrassingly ask the Prophet, also in the um, you assigned somebody to be Mu'adhan, but... He cannot, right? Because you don't want to challenge the Prophet Sallallahu but they were like, explain, you know? And he said, what's the issue? And so they were like, Ya Rasulullah, we are curious about how he will be able to tell what time it is to pray. And the Prophet Sallallahu said, oh, you'll tell him. You tell him and then he'll call the Adhan. Do you see how powerful that is? I mean, when we talk about inclusion all the time, right? Like, like as if we discovered it now in 2020. Inclusion, right? People are like, we have a wheelchair ramp. Inclusion, right? We have an elevator. Inclusion. Like, you know, the prophet, 1400 years ago, the prophet was like, no, no, no. This is part and parcel of community, right? This is who we are as Muslims. We are inclusive. To the point where I will assign a person to do a job that he does not have full capacity physically to perform, but you will help him. SubhanAllah. That's why we say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
just amazing, that foresight, right? So all of that story, sorry, major sidetrack. Welcome to Heartwork. So major tangent. All of that story was an example of Asbab and Nuzul. And you'll find this, by the way, in the books of Sirah, the books of, of, of history, and Asbab and Nuzul, you'll find that they will literally go over and highlight all of these moments. Like, this is why this surah was revealed. And then they'll go on a huge tangent. So why was Surah Al-Kahf revealed? Why was it revealed? Well, it's a very interesting story. During the Meccan days, this is a Meccan surah. It was revealed during the Meccan era, during the initial phase of the Prophet Sallallahu teaching. There were people in Medina who were rabbis. They were the rabbinical leaders of Bani Israel. So they were very knowledgeable about religious scripture and religion in general. Okay, why? Because they had the scriptures memorized. They had them understood. And in a way, the rabbis of the time, they held a certain status and class. Even though they were not pagans, the pagans respected them. Even though they weren't polytheists, the polytheists respected them. Because there was always this deep-seated reverence towards knowledge of religion. Always. And by the way, till now, still very much so that this exists. I mean, even people that don't, admittedly, don't believe in a religious practice or a belief or an ideology, when you see something like, for example, an example, this is like the Muslims, when we see the Pope, you know, walking out into the Vatican late at night with his robe on, like under, you know, no one can tell, and he's like feeding people, right? He's like trying to like wash people's feet. And then they're like, oh, the Pope snuck out last night and fed everyone food. Even Muslims are like, mashallah, right? Allah Hadi, al Pope, right? Like may Allah like guide him to Islam because you're like, that's respectable. That's amazing. I remember my wife and I went to the Vatican, and even though I don't believe in it, of course, I was like, this is incredible. Like, this is, it's overwhelming. Like, you see people devoting themselves, I believe to be not the correct way, but still, there is, you have to give credit in some degree where credit is due, that there are people giving themselves, devoting themselves to something greater than just their desires. It is respectable, right? Anything as much as I disagree with it, I still find there to be some sort of, you know, reverence in that. It's amazing. Okay. And this is the, this is the power of religion. The power of religion is that no matter what time you look at history, religion has always existed. People have always believed in something greater than themselves and devoted themselves to that thing, whether it was right or wrong. So the rabbis of Medina, they had that kind of cloud, right? They were, they had blue, blue check marks. And so in Mecca, they were grasping for anything to try to take the Prophet down. They were grasping for anything. They couldn't take him down on, on the merit of any argument that they could take other people down on. You know, they, they had nothing to quote unquote cancel him with. There was nothing in his history. You couldn't look back. They all knew him. They knew him from, from the time he was a child. Okay, he's 40 years old now. Like, he's, a, he's an adult man. He's married. You know what I mean? Like, you can't really go back and you know this guy. So instead of referring back to his past, what they initially tried to do was talk about the message right then and there. Okay, well, no, this doesn't make any sense or prove this. Oh, we're going to be brought back to life after we die. That's weird. That's a, that's a, that's a weird sort of story. Right, all of these things, and the Prophet would just come back with either revelation or his explanation that would just dis deconstruct and just disassemble their argument. Okay, 
So they became, once again, immobilized. They had no, nothing against the Prophet ﷺ, no ground to stand on. So what do they do? They turn to the rabbis. And they say, okay, we're going to fight scripture with scripture. We don't believe in any of this. <laughs> but why don't you guys tell us if he's claiming it's from God and you guys all believe in God, why don't you guys tell us something, give us something, a story, an artifact, whatever, that he has to corroborate. If he truly is in communication with God, that he can corroborate this story. Give us something. So they went to the rabbis and the rabbis were like, you know, shalom. And they walked in and they asked them, they said, give us this knowledge. Give us some knowledge from the Torah and the Injil. And the Jewish scholars, the rabbis, they said, okay, there's three questions you have to ask him. Okay. And this also happened before, by the way, this also happened with Surah Yusuf. And every time the Quraysh did this, spoiler alert, slam dunk right in their face. Okay. So, although this one's very interesting, so I'll tell you why. So the, Jew, the Jewish scholars said there was three things, three questions before him. They said, if he answers these three correctly, to their credit, they were kind of like, look, if he, if he knows what he's talking about, then he's a prophet. Because they also were waiting, right? They were waiting for the next prophet that was prophesied to them in their book. They said, first, ask him about the young men, the young men who left their city in the past, in history. They left their city and ask him what happened to them. They abandoned their city because of the corruption that was there. The rabbi said, this is a very unique event. If he is truly a prophet, he'll know what he's talking about. He'll know the story. Number two, they said, you need to ask him about the man, the person who traveled all the way through the east and conquered all the way through the, the west of the earth and ask him about the story of this person. And number three, they said, ask him about the ruh, the soul, and ask him, what is it? Like, explain to us the soul, okay? So the Quraysh, the two, the two uh, Qurayshi men, right? Nadr ibn Harith and Uqba ibn Abi Mu'it, these two men. They were like, we got him. So they, they went all the way back to Mecca and they met with the rest of their people and they said, look, we got him. We got these three questions from this, these Jewish scholars and they said that if he doesn't know these questions, then we're good, right? Then this is absolute. We got him. We stumped him. So they gathered together and they went and they met the Prophet and they said, you know, oh Muhammad, they said, um, we're interested in your religious uh, thing. But you need to first, you know, we just want to make sure that you're for real, right? Like, you want to make sure you're legit. So the Prophet was like, yeah, of course. Like, that's why I'm here. He's not, he, he doesn't see any uh, ill will within them. He's like, okay, bismillah, what, what, can I, what can I help you with? And they're saying, okay, we have these three questions that we asked from these uh, scholars. And um, if you're truly a prophet, you have to give us the answer. Number one is tell us about the, the group of young men that left their city, left their people. And they went and they took refuge. Number two, there's a person in history who conquered from the east to the west. Tell us about him. And number three, what is the ruh? Now, the Prophet ﷺ, he heard their questions and he said, okay, I hear your questions. These aren't things that I know right now. I will get you the answers tomorrow. And he didn't say, inshallah. Oh. Okay, he didn't say, inshallah. Okay, so he said, I will get you the answers tomorrow. And he didn't say, inshallah, right? Couple things here. 
that are like amazing. The first <laughs> is that he felt, okay, he's the, he's a messenger of God. This is his job. This is his job, okay? His job. Allah said, your job is to recite to them the verses, to purify them, and to teach them the book and the wisdom. Like, this is his role, okay? And he still has the self-awareness to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know has to be something that is, number one, comfortable, and number two, respected. Like, as a person, we have to be comfortable saying, I don't know. If somebody asks me, hey, what's this or what's that or in Islam, this or that, if I don't know with certainty the answer that they're looking for, I have to say, I don't know. The other side of it is that as a person who's receiving that answer, you have to respect it. You have to respect it. In fact, when a person says, I don't know, you should grow in respect for them. Right? Because not knowing is not a sign of weakness or deficiency. And when a person has the courage and the bravery to say it, then you should actually applaud that person and say, I really appreciate you not just kind of like giving me some answer or some runaround. Okay, now how does this apply to everybody here? Look, we are representatives of the Prophet Muhammad. It is the greatest relationship, it is the greatest human relationship that we can ever have. If somebody sees your face and thinks of Islam, it is the greatest honor that you will ever carry. Imagine meeting the Prophet on the Day of Judgment, not having any experiences with him, nothing in common in terms of like your life, but being Ya Rasulullah, saying to him, in my life, when people saw me, they thought of you. Like that's all we carry, right? Now, we're not perfect and we make a lot of mistakes, but if that's all we have, then inshallah, the Day of Judgment will be good for us. But if we continuously push that away, and we say, like, I'm not, I don't know enough to, to answer questions or be representative, this and that. Don't push away your relationship with the Prophet. Okay? No one here is at the level of a, of, a, of a scholar to where they can answer every question, but everyone here knows something. Yes? Yes or no? You guys, believe in yourselves. Remember Dave, the guy on the phone? All right? Believe in yourself. Does everyone here know something about Islam? Yes, that's why you're Muslim. You know something. If somebody comes to you and says, what is Islam all about? What do you guys, what's your go-to? All right, yeah, we, very good answer, Dunya. Okay, we'll save that for the end. What's, what's your go-to? Peace. All right, you're like, just peace. Come here, give me a hug, right? Just peace. Your friend's like, what's Islam all about? You're like, just come here. All right, let's hug it out. This is Islam, right? You feel that? That's Islam. Okay, Islam can, it can provide peace. Absolutely, for sure. That's one of its goals, right? Sakina, to give us tranquility. You've been, I mean, think about what the companions felt, right? Ya Rasulullah, I've been looking for this my whole life. That's what Islam gives, okay? That's what submission to Allah gives. What else? What do you guys go to when people say, what is Islam all about? Good character. Good character. Okay, good, yeah. Allah described the Prophet that you are on top of good character. You're a master of good character. Very good. MashaAllah, what else? Huh? We have la ilaha illallah. Very good. So that's what dunya said, mashallah. At the, you know, we all, depending on how much you've read or attended or listened or whatever, you might have a little bit of a nuance here, right? Level two, huh? Like, you know, yeah. oh, let me, let me teach you a little bit about something, right? But at the bare minimum, you know what everyone here can say? We worship God and we believe that along with all the prophets that God sent, that Muhammad, peace be upon him, is his final messenger. 
And that's what we believe, right? And I, I devote my life to that belief. And I do whatever that belief asks me to do as best I can. Like that, you know, you don't have to feel stumped. Like what is Islam all about? Like, unless it's like at the border and they're like, you're like trying to get back home, like me, every time I travel, you don't have to feel nervous at all, right? That's a very beautiful, comprehensive, confident answer, okay? Now, if someone asks you level two or three or four, what does Islam say about this? First of all, Islam doesn't say much because Islam has a lot of differences within it in terms of how to approach different things. But how does Islam approach this? Or how do we learn about what, what is Islam's stance on this? You know, uh, And if it's a lived experience, feel free to share. But if it's something that requires knowledge and training, feel absolutely free and confident saying, you know, what? I don't know, but I do know some people that do know. And I can go get you the answer. Like I can go and I can learn that answer and I can come back to you. That's the prophetic approach. His job was to be a prophet. And he told people, I don't know. That was his job. Your job. You're not a prophet, right? You're not. You're allowed to say, I don't know. If the prophet said it, you're allowed to say it. But he didn't say inshallah. So what happens? The prophet waits anxiously all day, all night, and no revelation comes. The Quraysh come to him and they say, hey, where's the, uh, the answer to our three questions? He says, it will come. He waits again another 24 hours. Nothing happens. 48 hours pass. 72 hours pass. 96 hours pass. I'm going to stop because I can't keep doing 24s like that. <laughs> right? 15 days. Two weeks. And every day, the harassment, the mockery, the laughing, the bullying gets more intense. This guy's a phony, man. We knew it the whole time, right? We should go and thank those rabbis. Solved our problem. All we needed to do is ask them three questions. Message is done. Islam is done. Let's go back to normal, right? This is who we are. SubhanAllah, the Prophet is sitting there, undoubtedly trusting Allah's plan, but at the same time, he's human, wondering, What's going to happen? Jibreel shows up. And Jibreel comes with Surah Al-Kahf. And he says to the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, right, with respect, I have with me 70,000 angels with this Surah. This doesn't happen normally. And I'm, I'm choking up because, number one, I always do. Number two, <laughs> because, do you see Allah's love for the Prophet also? It's like when the Prophet any moment he feels even for a second like he's alone, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just squashes that thought out of oblivion. Not only are you not alone, O Messenger of Allah, I'm not going to come to you one-on-one. I'm bringing the entire army with me. Ya Rasulullah, I have 70,000 angels. And we are here to deliver to you the answer to those three questions. Jibreel tells him, and in the surah later in the 20 in the 20s of the ayat like 23 24 i think allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually references this moment when he says if you intend to do something don't say i will do it without saying inshallah and this is why muslims are obsessed <laughs> do you guys ever wonder where that came from <laughs> there's actually a story there right this is what learning your deen does. It empowers you. Now when you say, inshallah, 
I want you not to think of you saying inshallah. And inshallah is a powerful statement. It is powerful because when a person says inshallah, they're submitting to two things. Number one, I'm not in control. And number two, Allah is. That's what you're submitting to. That's why the jokes about making inshallah like a, an easy letdown. Hey, you want to hang out? Inshallah. Right? Or like, hey, well, inshallah. You know, inshallah means no. <laughs> Which, by the way, it happens. Musa. <laughs> when I say inshallah, you go, don't say that. <laughs> he yells at me. Because he knows it means not right now. Okay? So my wife tells me, she goes, don't train him. Don't make him hate inshallah. Just say no. And I'm like, no, it's so hard. Right? Instead of those jokes circulating, inshallah is a beautiful reminder to the soul. If someone, you know, if you're hoping for something desperately and you're doing everything you can to achieve it, you're literally working your hardest to succeed at whatever you're putting your heart into. And someone asks you about it and you say, inshallah, I want you to realize you are reminding yourself of, of a reality. That as much as I am doing, as much as I'm trying, as much as I'm hustling, as much as I'm working, inshallah, if Allah wills. It's not my will. I don't control this. If I controlled it, it would already be the way that I wanted it. I'm reminding myself, inshallah is a reminder. It's self-talk to the soul and to the body and to the mind and to the heart that you are not the one who makes these decisions. You know, my dad, subhanAllah, my dad is like one of the most intelligent people I mean, you know those Jeopardy runs, 60 days, 70 days, those people who just kill it on Jeopardy? My dad for sure, right? I mean, he'd be like the Tom Brady of Jeopardy. He's just a genius, mashallah, okay? And in 2008, loses his job and unable to find work immediately. And I remember asking him, like, Dad, you are so, you are so, like, degree, you have, you have a ton of degrees. Like, you're just so qualified. You should be able to walk into anywhere and get a job. And my dad, who's not by any means like a scholar of tafsir or a scholar of hadith or any of that, in terms of this stuff, I probably read more than he does of this. But spiritually, he had a truth that I did not have. And that was, he said, Rahman, I am not in control. My degrees do not give me risk. My training does not give me money. Allah gives me everything. And, and he, he, he said that not... Not as an angry person, but as a content person. Like knowing what the word inshallah meant. Inshallah means that whatever Allah wills, it is what's best for me. And I'm submitting to that. I'm taking it. As bitter or as sweet as that pill is to swallow, I am taking it full on and saying, Oh Allah, whatever you will, I am content in whatever you destined for me. Because, oh Allah, I trust you more than I trust myself. And so as much as I'm trying, I'm only trying because you told me you told me to try. <laughs> I'm only working because Allah, you told me to work. But oh Allah, at the end of the day, I don't know ultimately if this is good or bad for me. I don't know if this job is the right one for me. I don't know if this person is the right one for me. You're like, yes, I do. No, you don't. You really don't, right? The dua is like, can I? <laughs> Istikhara modified, Istikhara plus, right? Like, well, can I add one part to it? I'm like, what? If they're not good for me, make them good for me, right? <laughs> Again, the joke is funny, but it's it's also a little bit, right? We got to be real. Ask Allah to give you what he knows is best for you. Khalas, like best, that's it. Don't ask Allah. Don't ask Allah to give you the pen to write your destiny. Because as the Quran tells us, لَوْ يُتِيْ أَرْكُمْ فِي كَثِيرٍ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ لَعَنِتْتُمْ 
if you were the author of your own life, you would hate it. You would hate it. How many mistakes do we make? How many U-turns do we have to make? We can barely even drive on these Dallas highways without missing an exit. <laughs> a lot of, that was a connection. You're like, that's so true. That's the reality of our destiny, man. We have to trust someone who knows more than us. When you anchor yourself, you have to anchor yourself with something heavier than yourself. Inshallah is that statement. And when we abandon that statement, when we trivialize it, when we informal and when we make it informal, we're forgetting the heavy truth that it carries. It's a reminder and it's a truth and it's a reality that puts your heart at rest and allows you to remind yourself to trust in Allah Ta'ala's plan. So 15 days, Jibreel comes to the Prophet and he tells him, so it's Kahf and he gives him what will be the four sections, right? The three answers and then the last section of the surah. We're going to go ahead and wrap up now because it's not of time. Uh, I did not plan that. I was planning getting started tonight, but okay. Um, we ask Allah Ta'ala to accept from us. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to purify our hearts. And we ask Allah Ta'ala to allow this study of his book to be a continuation of the blessed month of Ramadan. And that that month didn't end for us, but rather it began something for us. And that we hope that this Quran becomes our companion for us in this life. It becomes the light for us when things are dark. It becomes a cure for us when we are sick. It becomes the relief for us when we are feeling heavy and, and bogged down. We ask you, O oh Allah, to make this Quran the nourishment for our soul that we need, just like food and drink nourishes our body. Amin, amin, ya rabbil alameen. Anyone have any questions before we wrap up? Maghrib is in about three minutes, so we'll wrap up uh, then. Finish the Dave's story. Dave's? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Friday at 10.30 is our appointment, inshallah. Make dua. We need it. So I'm like, Musa, you can have whatever you want. Just be quiet the entire time. No, no, 10.30, inshallah. He got me an appointment. We're good to go. Musa actually had his uh, passport photos today. He kept smiling. The lady's like, don't smile. <laughs> <laughs> we had a qu couple questions here. Yeah. Does the protection of from Dajjal, yeah. is it from? Uh, Allah knows best. The hadith says from the Dajjal, from the fitna of Dajjal. So, of course, the illusions, the tricks, all of the the sorcery that people are going to be falling into, because those are his uh, those are his means of proving to people like I am what I say I am. Um, that's probably Allah knows best the most dangerous. But of course, there's other things, right? The actual physical danger, the destruction that he will have. Uh, it seems to be the hadith says that it will be protection from the effects of Dajjal. So we hope that it's everything, inshallah. Yeah. Anyone else? Questions? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So should we say, inshallah, when we are asking Allah for something? Um, th there's some stories of some... Okay. Uh, for anyone who was fasting today, we have uh, two boxes of pizza for iftar for you saved. So please go ahead and just go see Batul and crew in the back, inshallah, if you were fasting. I'm only saying that because you have a minute left. Um, so for du'a and inshallah. So there's some scholars that from their from their like emphatic certainty, right? Because the Prophet said to make du'a to Allah and be certain that he will answer it. 
their emphatic certainty led them to say things like, there's a famous statement of Ibn Taymiyyah where he said that, you know, we are going to uh, be victorious. And they, his students said to him like, you know, oh, inshallah, he goes, no, we are. Right. And again, it's not that he's denying the, 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 the lesson, the meaning of inshallah, but it's him saying, I have this certainty. However, is this supposed to be like out of etiquette, something that we, Allah knows, uh, I, I've never heard that from my teachers and I've only been around them when they say things that they're hoping for and they're saying inshallah as well. Uh, and so from what I understand from my experience with my teachers, it's not, the two are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Inshallah. <laughs> I say it a lot. If you listen to me, I say it a lot. Beginning, middle, and end of sentences. I say it all the time. My mom, my mom's training. Yeah. Will Dajjal also be questioned on the Day of Judgment? Good question. Uh, the answer is yes. Every every creature with aql will be questioned on the day, on the day of judgment, even shaitan, right? Why? You know, like those crimes where, like on on the news, they're like this person. There's video footage. They admitted it. Da 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 da. But they still have to go through due process, just as a as a as a testament to the integrity of the system, right? So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gives everyone their due process. Everyone gets their chance. Even the ones that we know, that there is no excuse for what they did. They still have to stand before Allah and answer about the deeds that they did. And so the answer would be uh, yes, Allah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who? Okay, so say someone. Oh, people have to be before Allah and forgive them? Yeah. Allah knows best. Yeah. Maybe if they didn't seek, Allah knows. Yeah. 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 Any other questions? Yes. Something like that. We'll, we'll get there one day, inshallah. Inshallah. She asked about Juj and Juj. That, yeah, yeah. So we'll get there, inshallah. We'll get there. I just didn't want to open up that that part of uh, end of days. Okay, who's Juj and All right, yeah, yeah. Okay. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.